My guest today is Janet Iwasa. Janet is an assistant professor in the biochemistry department at the University of Utah. She and her lab create some incredibly interesting animations of diverse molecular and cellular processes. Janet, it's great to have you on today. Thank you. Okay, so let's get right into it. So as a molecular animator, can you guide me to the high level process of going from a scientific hypothesis to an animation? So um, one thing that's probably worth noting early is that all of our projects are collaborations. So typically, um, it depends on the project, but some projects we uh, kind of come up with the, the basic concept ourselves. So for example, we have a SARS-CoV-2 lifecycle animation, um, which is our own project. And we seek out collaborators to help us um, kind of understand the different parts of the life cycle. In other cases, uh, people approach us and they ask us to animate a specific process that they're, that they're working on. And in that case, you know, they usually have a pretty good idea of what they want to show. Um, and so we talk to them about it. Um, and then from that point forward, um, once we have a collaborator and we're working with them, um, we typically go through a, a process that's not not dissimilar from animation studios like Pixar. Um, so we would typically write a narration uh, with our collaborators, then we would create a storyboard, uh, which is a hand-drawn sketch usually accompanied with some text to describe each step of the animation. Um, and we'll include questions for our collaborators because they usually inevitably come up um, while we're putting together the storyboard and trying to you know, do the first steps in visualizing what's happening. Um, so we go back and forth on the storyboard to make sure we got the details right. Um, and then we start uh, make, making models. So usually most of our animations are molecular. So that typically means that we're working with PDBs, so um, structural files or um, sometimes EMDBs, so files from either EM data, crystallography, uh, cryo-EM, things like that. Um, and then we bring those all together in our animation software. So we use a software called Autodesk Maya. And, uh, and then we, we start animating it from there. Um, and then after that, the last stage is typically uh, post-production, adding titling and, and text and labels and narration and all of that into a movie file. In terms, of, I guess, like how this is distributed across time. So is like most of it actually spent animating it or is there still a lot of work conceptualizing the animation? How exactly does that look? It, it depends from project to project, but typically the longest stage is the animation process. Um, so that that usually is the most time consuming stage. Gotcha. And out of all the animations you've done, has there been one that's been particularly exciting or fulfilling? I think we really get a lot out of having long term projects. Um, so there are a few of those. So one of them uh, it's a project called the Science of HIV. So we've been working on this for multiple years now, uh, where we've had a large number of collaborators through um, a research group that we're part of. Um, and so for that project, we've been animating a lot of different parts of the HIV life cycle. And this is both sort of an outreach project as well as a research project. So we've made uh, a larger animation, I think it's about eight minutes, showing the entire life cycle of HIV at a molecular scale. But we've also made a series of shorter animations that have gotten incorporated into research papers and things like that uh, for the individual collaborators within our research center. Yeah, the HIV one's super awesome. So for all the listeners, uh, check it out if uh, you have never seen it. Yeah, it's at scienceofhiv.org. So yeah, and it's free to download. 
Um, we have one that has like musical accompaniment and one that has kind of more narration. Um, but yeah, and we're always updating it. So we have some new parts to be adding this year. So I also wanted to ask, how exactly does animation strengthen the research process? You know, does it force one to think more deeply about their hypotheses? Does it spur new research directions? What are some of the kind of the positive side effects of this process? Yeah, so all of those things can happen. So I think the way, you know, I think about it is that for a lot of the, the processes that we study inside the cell, we have a lot of indirect bits of data that basically tell us what's happening at this kind of what's called the mesoscale. So the scale at which you can still see molecules and the shape and sizes of them, but within the context of the cell. And so this, this kind of scale is considered to be relatively invisible to experimentation. So we can we have to kind of collect all these bits of indirect data and then start constructing these kind of images in our mind of what this actually looks like inside the cell and not just like in a test tube or something. So, um, so I think, you know, the. The fact that we have to imagine it makes animation really powerful because it can show basically what someone, a researcher, is imagining. Um, and so that 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 sort of visual, um, that hypothesis, what I call a visual hypothesis, um, once you see it in animated form, you may realize that you you agree with some parts or disagree with other parts, and you can come up with experiments um, that can differentiate between two models. Um, so that's one way it can be useful. I think another thing is that um, I, I think a lot of us, it's really hard to visualize or, or be able to understand very complex three-dimensional things. So, you know, the kind of what's happening inside the cell is pretty different um, than what we can imagine happening, you know, um, kind of in our physical reality. And so it's it's hard to imagine like thousands of molecules moving around and, and forming complexes and bumping into each other. Um, it's and, and understanding how three dimensional shapes fit together without actually being able to play with them. Um, so, so I think that there are a lot of things that happen when we're creating these animations that allow us to kind of think, oh, you know, these things don't fit together very well, you know, maybe there's something else going on, or um, you watch an animation and you, you you get an intuitive sense of whether this is this seems right or there's more going on here that we don't yet know. So I think there are a lot of different ways of, that people get insights. Um, and often it's not necessarily just through watching an animation, but more through the animation process of being able to see things for the first time all together in one place. Um, and realizing, you know, this looks right or this maybe it doesn't look right. So also more generally, why do you think more people should be working or thinking about visualization and biology? Like what's fundamentally important about visualization that maybe most people haven't really internalized? Yeah, I mean, I, I the way I see it is that we can sort of think about the role of animation in a few different places, a few different kind of uh, arenas. One of them I think that's really important and that I think most people appreciate is that animation can be really useful for outreach and education. Um, so, you know, the way that we can visualize, um, if we can visualize these sorts of processes, it allows us to be able to communicate uh, them to really broad audiences. So one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, if we if we use the kind of traditional drawings that we use to, to show a process, you know, circles and squares and a bigger circle, which represents a cell and say, you know, this is this exciting molecular process that I'm studying and I've made this major discovery, but we're using like stick figure drawings 
to show what it is, it's really hard to get like a kid or an adult who's not a scientist excited about it. Um, whereas if I think you show a molecular animation that shows all this complexity and detail, it's kind of like a window into a researcher's mind, into what they think is actually happening. And, and I think it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to see why this is exciting and interesting. Um, and I think that's really important, you know, because otherwise I think biologists kind of seem like a bunch of weirdos when, you know, you just have, you're just thinking, people think you're just thinking about circles and squares and arrows and um, really, you know, what you're thinking about is kind of the complexity and the beauty of, of this molecular world that we can't see. Um, so I think communicating that is important to just humanize biology and molecular biology in particular. Um, the other the other thing I, I've alluded to already is is that you know I think animation can play a really important role in research, both in communicating research to other people within our research community, um, but also um, just being able to uh, get these sorts of insights uh, from the animation process. So Janet, you have a really interesting background. Uh, how exactly did you make the leap into animation? So I actually got into animation in grad school. Um, so I was um, I had followed a pretty pretty traditional path to becoming a biology grad student up until then. So I, you know, a lot of people ask me whether I have an art background, and and I really don't. I I didn't take any art classes after they were not required anymore, like in middle school or something. Um, so so yeah, I have I have basically no art background, um, but I got interested in animation partially because I saw a molecular animation in grad school and it made me appreciate that, you know, the types of figures that we were making really didn't capture a lot of the data we were collecting. Um, so it was just an oversimplification. Um, and I saw an animation of Kinesin, which was, um, which was done by a lab next door to ours. And, uh, and it really made me think that this is, this is probably the best way to communicate and to share the types of discoveries we're making about what was happening on the molecular scale. So um, are there other forms of visualization aside from animations that you're particularly excited about that you think are capturing information that maybe traditional modalities aren't? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like um, seeing examples of data visualization that are interactive. So for example, the New York Times has a number of stories that allow you to kind of um, do this sort of what's called scrolly telling. So as you scroll down on a website, um, the, the data, the figure changes as you scroll down to kind of go along with the text you're reading. Um, and in general, I think incorporating interactivity, especially when you have complex data, data that changes over time, maybe multidimensional data, um, is super important. And it's important for people to be able to kind of see that um, and be able to explore it. So a few rapid fire questions. Um, what would you say the most common mistake experienced scientists make when they visualize data? I think people try to um, make a visualization answer all the questions. They try to put too many things into a single visualization. And as a result, it becomes very cluttered and confusing. Um, so I think it's important to, um, to make sure that people are following. So if it's a multi-step thing, you know, what I tell people to do if they're making a figure is they should show it to someone who's not in their lab and maybe not in their direct field and ask them without a legend and ask them to explain what's happening. And if they can't, you know, then probably uh, a figure should be redrawn um, or reconsidered in some way. 
Who's your favorite visual artist and why? Um, you know, I, I really like watching Pixar <laughs> animations in general. I guess that's not a, like a specific person, but a studio. I think they're, you know, they're very creative and they just do great storytelling and, you know, um, just very, very engaging. Is there something in the, I don't know if you saw the latest one, but was there something particularly cool from an animation perspective you thought uh, happened there? Um, you know, I, I have watched pretty much all of the Pixar movies, but I think, you know, when I was first learning animation, I watched probably more. And I remember around that time, it was like Ratatouille came out. Um, and I was, I was attending some animation type comp visualization conferences like SIGGRAPH. And I was sort of just blown away by the kind of the amount of work that goes into like animating like a piece of cheese to make it look delicious, you know? So things like that really, uh, I watched talks by people talking about how the light was being bounced around in this slice of cheese. And, um, and I think at that, around that time, it became somewhat intolerable to watch animated movies with me. So my husband and I watched Ratatouille in the theater and I would just be like, tapping him on the shoulder and being like, look, look at the grapes. They're so, they look so real. He'd just be like, stop it. <laughs> you know, let's just watch the movie. So, uh, okay, last couple of questions to wide on the podcast. So I wanted to ask, uh, what role do you think virtual reality will play in visualization of uh, biological structures and processes? I feel like the jury is still out a little bit on how virtual reality can be used in a research or educational sphere. I think, you know, maybe what, what it's going to take is having more data, more people really uh, working to create simulated data, simulations, 3D simulations of, of proteins. Um, so I think once we have sort of more content, then it becomes easier to imagine how we'll be able to use it. Um, so right now, I feel like there aren't a lot of data sets that we can use for VR um, for exploring things like animations, uh, because, you know, for our animations, you can't really explore them in VR because they're really only shot from one angle that makes sense. It's not like there is a constructed world or something. It's really like, you know, there the microtubule ends right here and like the protein only walks in one direction and you can't really, if you were to rotate around it, you know, you can't really do that. Um, so I think that's getting around that means really getting into simulation and being able to simulate or do some combination of animation and simulation with proteins in, in sort of this subcellular environment. Um, you know, I've seen uses of using VR for exploring data sets. Um, so for example, uh, using exploring light sheet microscopy, so three-dimensional data sets or structures of proteins. And I think people are able to get insights from that, um, but going one step beyond it to create like really an animated world, I think would, would take a lot more people creating these sort of animated or, or simulated um, molecules. Great. So last question. Uh, do you envision a future where creating animations becomes A, more broadly accessible and B, eventually commonplace in journals? So I, do, I think that animations are already becoming relatively common uh, in journals already. Um, and I think, you know, so I've had the experience of 
you know, being able to essentially replace a model figure, uh, like, like a two-dimensional illustration with a 3D animation. Um, so I had a collaboration where we created this animation and the journal decided to publish it as in an, in an online only format where the animation was embedded rather than some supplemental figure that you just have to download uh, at the end, it was actually embedded um, in the article. So in order to read the article, you had to go online. And when you saw the article, the animation was embedded. And I think this is the way that things will be moving. Uh, it's a more natural way of viewing animations or, or models or videos or, or um, all of those kinds of things. So we have an increasing a number of things that are three-dimensional data that are dynamic data. And I think that is the obvious way um, to be able to see that. Um, so I think journals are already moving in that direction. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that it's, it's still been so slow, um, but definitely when we, we also have textbooks and things like that, that are moving in the direction of becoming more digital um, and having different types of media embedded. So I think that's already uh, happening. It's just a question of, you know, when when will will we be able to kind of totally go online when it comes to um, articles? Um, so I think um, I think right now the bottleneck for animations is the technology and having more uh, software that really is. Uh, doesn't present such a steep learning curve for people to enable them to really be able to create an animation more easily. We, we don't have that right now. There are, um, there are some, some groups who are working to create software. Um, so for example, David Goodsell has released a software called Cell Paint, which allows people to kind of paint molecules um, in sort of an intuitive way and has some animation capabilities. So something like that, I think, um, is, is one way to go. There's software like Chimera and Pymol um, that enable people to do some animation and you know whether they can add a little bit more uh, functionality there to really bridge the gap um, is, is something that I think is also would be great. Um, so I think there are various ways, depending on the types of animations people want to create, that maybe there are going to be some softwares that allow people um, to create more more than just a rotating protein uh, type animation. So, um, so yeah, I think those those software are coming, um, but but not quite here yet. Very great, Janet. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you.